From 1 John 3:11 through 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, City Church. It's good to be with you here this morning. My name is David Richter, and I'm the pastor here at City Church of East Nashville. And um, it is a, a great joy to be able to gather together to open up God's Word this morning, uh, to be able to, to learn from Him. If you've been with us uh, for the last uh, little while, you'll know that this summer we worked through the book of Philippians in the first half, uh, or the, more than that, first three quarters. And then this last four weeks, we've been kind of focusing in on a specific uh, little series, a four-part series in the book of 1 John. And in many ways, the reason we did that is because John himself says that the point of this book is to, uh, to make sure that our joy is complete in Christ. And the book of Philippians is all about joy. And so it is a completion of that in many ways. And so we have been focusing in on what it looks like to have our joy be complete in Christ Jesus as we kind of open up his word and seek to learn from him in this way. And so today we're going to be continuing that series. <clears throat> and as we uh, do so, and before we dump in, I just want to remind you that this is an interesting book. It's not a linear book. Uh, the Gospel of John is a, in many ways a very similar thing. Uh, it is a book that and it, it has a lot of cyclical themes. So he is like talking about different themes and it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a tornado shape. It's kind of going around in circles and he'll come back to these themes and it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And through this, he's more and more unpacking these great themes and helping us to understand more and more what it looks like to lean into these in our lives. And but these things actually transform us and change us and drive us into a place where our joy can be made complete in Christ. Um, and a lot of these themes that we've seen over the past several weeks have been really some of these grand themes of life, like light and darkness, life and death, love and hate, righteousness and unrighteousness. And uh, in verse uh, five, in chapter five, verse 13, he tells us that the reason he's been driving toward these is not only that our joy can be made complete, so that we also might know that we have eternal life. We might know that we're saved in this world. And, and that's a big question for a lot of people in our world right now. How do we know that we're saved? How do we know what salvation looks like? How do you know if you actually have the hope um, that the gospel portrays? And as John has gone along, he's given us a series of tests to be able to understand this or to be able to help answer this question for us. Uh, we looked at the question of do you know God? Do you love God or do you love the world? Do you walk in light or walk in darkness? Are you righteous or unrighteous? 
Do you walk in God's ways or the ways of the world? These are things that, and themes that he has kind of presented to us as we've been coming along. And this week he presents to us yet another test. And this test is this. Do you love the church? Do you love the church? If you look here in verse 14, it's the key verse for this passage, and this is what John says to us. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Now, in the scriptures, oftentimes when it uses the term brothers or men or things like that, we in our culture uh, look at that and, and kind of see it in a sexist way, and, and it can be uh, in different contexts. I don't want to uh, uh, belittle that in any way, but the scriptures have tended uh, and oftentimes use these kind of terms as a universal term for everyone. So it's not just talking about men here or brothers here, it's talking about all those who are in Christ. It's talking about the people of God who have been gathered together in the church. It's talking about what it means to actually love the children of God as we are gathered together. How do we love the church? And I would be remiss at this point if I didn't just kind of acknowledge right up front, and I wanna do that, that this idea of loving the church in our culture today is a very difficult thing to talk about and to comprehend and to struggle through. Uh, it is a touchy subject for us. I heard another pastor say recently in, uh, in an article that I read this past week that expert opinions, scientific surveys, and common sense will tell you that there are two things that are going on spiritually in our culture right now. The first one is that an enormous hunger has arisen for things uh, that uh, talk about and think about and explore the idea of spirituality. In fact, our culture right now, if you look at a lot of different surveys, is more interested in spirituality than it has been for a very, very long time. People are really, really interested in the concept of spirituality. However, even though this is true, there's also a major movement away from institutionalized religions. In recent poll that I read this past week, two-thirds of all Americans say that they believe in God. This is uh, historically low, but it's still a very high number. But in this poll, it also showed that 81% of those who said that they believed in God also believe that a person who is committed to God does not have to attend church on a regular basis or does not have to be a part of any kind of institutionalized religion. In this, we can see that there is a great love for spirituality, but not a great love for the church. There's a great love for faith, but not a great up love for organized religion. Even historically committed people, post-pandemic, right now, we are seeing a really interesting trend, and that is that people who have been a part of the church their whole lives are, are questioning and considering and not as uh, involved as they used to be and struggling with what it means to live a life uh, of a Christian in this world. And the question that comes in this is this, John here is telling us that one of the tests of true faith is that we actually love the church. Then what does that mean for us? Where does it leave us in this world? And this is the question that I want us to ponder together today as we dive into this passage. It's what I want us to think deeply about because I don't think it's something that is just important for us as a community, especially in this time as we're coming out of COVID. It's an incredibly important question for everyone in our world today. And therefore, I want us to think deeply about this so that we can ask the Lord and pray and ask him to actually reveal the reality of his truth to us and strengthen us together and knit us together as his people. 
But before we dive in, let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us this morning and to move in our midst. Father, we, we praise you, as we do every week, that you are our God, that you have come, that you have revealed yourself to us, uh, that you uh, have uh, spoken into our lives, that you don't always tell us the things that we want to hear, but you tell us truth no matter what. And Lord, that you have moved in such a way, that you have uh, engaged in such a way, that you have yourself come in such a way, that we can be reoriented to what is real and true in this world, and that we can know what real flourishing looks like. And Father, I pray that you would remember your promises today as we open up your word as your people, that you would open up our hearts and minds, that you would awaken us, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds and hearts to respond to the wonder of your word, and that you would transform us by your grace. And that all of this, Lord, that your name would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, this past week, as I was thinking through the concepts of what it means to answer the question that I brought up a minute ago, uh, I did a lot of Googling and just kind of thinking about, you know, what are the main questions that our world is struggling with right now? Uh, what are the defining questions of our time? And as I did that, uh, as you might expect, I got a lot of different answers through Google. Um, I got things like poverty and race, uh, gender, education, climate change, politics, war. These are all common things. If I did a poll, I'm, I'm guessing that most of those would come out uh, with all of you uh, as you had different kind of emphases that you wanted to talk about what our defining things are. And one of the interesting things that uh, was uh, brought up to me or, or it came to me as I was kind of thinking about this is while there is a great diversity of opinion about what the defining question of our time is in our culture, as you really dig in, what you discover is, is that uh, all of these themes have a very, very similar theme at their heart. It's interesting to note that almost every answer that you get from this question shares the idea that they all point to things that deeply divide us in this world. Rich, poor, black, white, male, female, education, educated, uneducated, Republican, Democrat, on and on, right? Don't need to do a whole lot of convincing to, to convince you that these are things that deeply divide us, both locally and globally, um, both within our particular culture and all the cultures across the world. And this realization has led many to believe that the central defining question of our time is not rooted in any one of these individual themes, but in the question itself of how can we overcome the deep and abiding divisions of our world so that we can live together in unity? It's a big question, isn't it? It's one that strikes at the very anxiety of most of us in the midst of a world that is deeply divided. How can the many live together as one? Now, it's important to recognize that this problem is not something that's new. It's a problem that's existed throughout all human history. Um, it's uh, specifically or acutely a good question to ask on a day like today when we are remembering what happened on 9-11, right? And the divisions that led to that. Yet there is some realities about our modern age that actually make this more acute, that raises it to a level of amplification that uh, has brought us to a place of crisis in many ways. And I think we all feel that. 
Here's just a couple of examples to this. We live in a world of great globalization. Incredible technology has advanced our way to communicate with one another, to know what's going on in different parts of the world, to see and be close to one another, to be able to travel quickly and rapidly, to communicate quickly and rapidly. And these are amazing things, but they've also brought us into contact with the reality of the brokenness of the world that we've never experienced before. We know what's going on and what devastating things are happening around the world in real time like we've never known in the history of the world. And this, as many people have written about, has created an enormous anxiety because we feel the weight of this all the time. We feel the responsibility of this all the time. And it drives us to a place of crisis. Here's another one, pluralization. There's a great confluence as we have become more and more connected to one another of stories and worldviews about reality and how the world exists. And we have very, very different ideas about what things are, why we exist, where we're going, what a particular worldview, what reality is really about. And this, uh, in many ways, is a glorious thing. Like, we can explore and see and understand what different people believe, but it's actually watered down our ability to really understand who we are either. And it's led us to a place of even more crisis. Then you think about secularization. There's no clear and commonly agreed upon moral foundation by which we can adjudicate our differences anymore. I'm not trying to be a social warrior in this, but I am trying to point out the reality of the fact that with so many different stories, so many different worldviews, so many different religions all together at once, there is an ocean of narratives now that tell us why we should do certain things in this world and why certain things are right and wrong. And when you don't agree on what those things are, the question of things like justice and mercy and service become very difficult for us to be able to comprehend. And I would argue that we're struggling deeply with this reality. And then finally, building on this, we have modernization. Uh, there's a guy named Zygmunt Boltmann um, who uh, has developed and kind of pr uh, proposed the idea uh, that where we are, if, you, if you've read any kind of philosophy, and I'm not going to get into this too much, but you know, people talk about modernism, they talk about postmodernism. Uh, his idea that we are actually in a time of what he calls liquid modernity, which is a fascinating, fun, fun little word to throw out there. And what he means by that is that we now live in an age where change is the ultimate aim. The most successful people in our world today are the ones who are the most, uh, have the most ability to change the most rapidly. They're the most flexible, they're the most rootless, they're the most constantly moving, changing jobs, changing identities, changing directions. And the ability to be able to do that quickly and succinctly is actually what leads most people to success right now. It is the way that you succeed. The people who live anywhere and believe anything and maneuver between these things are the ones who actually find that they actually can have success in this world. In fact, change is so constant and rapid that what we're discovering right now is that no social or relational institution is actually able to actually come to a place where it has any solidity to it anymore. Because things change so quickly, it is really difficult to kind of have anything solid, anything concrete anymore. And this created incredible instability within our cultures, not just ours, but cultures around the world. And it's led to isolation. 
It's led to identity crises of who we are and where we're going, what our story is, why we should be bound together as a people or a group, no matter how small or wide the scope of what you're looking at is. And this has led to an incredibly complex situation that is applying enormous pressure and strain to the world that we live in right now. And that was all before the pandemic. And the pandemic has only become a great amplifier of these things in our lives to the point where we feel the crisis almost all the time. We feel the anxiety of these things almost all the time. You cannot turn on the TV. You cannot engage with your neighbor. You cannot engage with the world around you without feeling the reality of these tensions piling on and putting pressure on us. And what we need to understand in this is that this is not just a cultural crisis. This is a crisis that actually exists within the church as well. Historically, we've experienced this. You have uh, divisions around the world between uh, different branches of Christianity, the Catholic Church, the Protestant Church, the Ethan Orthodox Church. is a great history, long history of why we're divided over these different things. These have led to divisions within these groups. Within the American church, a friend of mine, Greg Thompson, has said that with very few exceptions, we have expressed uh, ourselves almost wholly along the economic, political, and racial and cultural divisions of our culture itself. Sunday mornings, he says, and this was just very recently, are still the most segregated hour in American culture. They still are. That's not just because of race, but race has a big part in that. It's also economics. It's also global, regional realities that are playing there. But instead of pushing back against that, we often reflect those things. And it's led to more pressure. In our church itself, there are lots of good and encouraging things that have happened over the past several years. But we also have had a lot of discouraging things, a lot of conflict, a lot of, you know, disunity over certain things. You know, one of the things that we did uh, this past year is we had a revisioning time where we came together, we walked through and tried to remember what it is to be a church and why we're here together, what the Lord calls us to. It led to some really good conversations, but some of those conversations were hard. And I've heard from many of you recently how those conversations uh, awakened in you kind of the reality that we have different groups in our church who have very, very different uh, emphases and very different kind of longings for different things. And it asked the question, like, what does it look like for us to be aligned, to have unity with one another? I actually thought these were really helpful conversations. But it also pointed out the reality of what's true, and that is we have divisions that we have to kind of work through. In the midst of all of this, People in the church, but also people in our world are asking this very question that I brought up earlier. How can the many live together as one? And the church's answer to this, because of our struggles, is often we don't know. And so the question that I have for this passage today is, so what do we do with that? Where do we go from here? Do we just live in the midst of this? Do we give up and throw our hands up? Or is there hope? And what we find here in our passage is something that is incredibly profound, but can also be incredibly confusing. Because if you look here in verse 11, John gives us the answer to this question. And it is this. The answer is love. Full stop. The answer is love. He says here that we need to love one another. Now, 
If you're anything like me and you hear a statement like this, you immediately think about the fact that it just sounds like a platitude, right? You know what a platitude is, right? It's one of those kind of broad statements that you often hear in our culture uh, that nobody disagrees with, you know, because none, none of us would ever say that we don't like the idea of love. We love love, right? We all love love. Love is great. But in the end, it seems naive. It seems uh, a little bit... Uh, uh, shallow in the face of the real complexities, the real brokenness, the real suffering and sorrow that we experience in this world because of our divisions. And it seemingly provides no real answer to those issues. Uh, you can think about this in, in our culture right now. I don't mean to be mean to anybody or pile on in any way, uh, but you hear things by like musical artists that say that we just need to be kind to one another, right? We need to feel it, we need to be kind, we need to spread kindness around. That's a great thing, who would ever disagree with that, right? but it doesn't lead us to any kind of real answers. Um, if you remember many years ago, as I do, some of you may be too young, but in the Rodney King affair, Rodney King's famous statement was, we all just need to get along. Why can't we all just get along? And the answer to that question that we discovered in the, in the wake of that, in the riots that occurred, is that we can't. Historically, we can't just get along. Making a statement like that, as wonderful as it sounds, doesn't actually lead to action. It doesn't actually lead us to solve the problems that we deal with in this world. And if this is true, then why should we treat the statement that John is making here about love any differently? Well, this is what I want us to look at. I want us to think about the fact, to answer this question, it's important to understand a couple of different things about how the church that John is writing to responded to what he is saying to them here. First of all, uh, the people that John is writing to were not naive or shallow about the suffering of this world. Uh, if you know anything about the context of the people that he was writing to here, uh, the reality was that they had experienced great suffering and great persecution. This was a people that were well acquainted with these realities, of the divisions and the brokenness of this world. So you can't just say that they were a bunch of people who had no idea that these things existed. They knew it very well. However, they had come to know and believe something that had completely transformed their lives and led them to experience a unity and a love that was anything but a platitude. First of all, they had come to know and believe that the God of the Bible was the true and living creator of the world. And there's some things in there that are really important for us to comprehend. One is this, that according to the Bible, the God of the Bible is a trinity. Now that's something that's really difficult for us to wrap our minds around. He is one God and three persons. Uh, I cannot fully explain to you how all that works. But one of the beauties of some of the things that are mysteries in the Bible is while I cannot explain fully how they work, they often explain fully how we work. The Bible says that God, because he is one God in three persons, has lived from all eternity in a perfect community, a perfect relational dynamic within himself. And therefore, the fact that we are relational beings is rooted in that reality. How do you get a relational being from a non-relational universe? It's a big question. You can't. But you can get relational beings that desperately need to be united to one another and be in relationship with one another when we've been created by a relational God. You can get beings that were made for a community and need community because they were made by a God who was himself a community. And this is why this is important. 
God has existed from all eternity in this way, and he has created us for this very community, this very unity with one another. And when God created humanity, he created us in his image to reflect his very nature into the world. This is what we were been made for, and it is beautiful. It is why we believe that community is a beautiful thing and a good thing in this world. It is why we believe that we need one another. We need relationships. It's why we die without them. People who are isolated and taken away from community many times will actually just die. We have lots of occurrences of this because we're made for this reality. We're told here that it's the very foundation of our unity in this world. But that's not all. They also had come to know and come to believe in the cause of how we got to the place where we have disunity in this world. Not just good to know why we were created for and what we were created for. It also is important for us to know what went wrong, right? And according to the Bible, despite the beauty of the created purpose that we have in this world, in the beginning, mankind chose to rebel against our creator. And in doing so, we brought sin and violence and disunity into this world and death. These things entered into our heart, into our world. It broke our world. And it's divided us and divided us from one another and from God ever since. And that's exactly the story that John begins to unpack for us as an illustration here in verse 12. He talks about the idea of the story of Cain and Abel. This is right at the beginning of time. It's right after the fall. And you have these two brothers, in fact, the two first brothers in the history of the world. One was a sheep herder and one was a farmer. And they had very different approaches to how they approached God. Abel approached God by giving God the first fruits of everything that he had. In recognition that all of those things belonged to God anyway. And therefore, God praised him for that. Cain, on the other hand, was a sheep herder, and while he did make a sacrifice to the Lord, he gave, uh, I mean, Cain was a farmer, and while he did make a sacrifice to the Lord, he just gave what he had, and not just the first fruits. He gave kind of God the seconds, and therefore he didn't get the praise that he was supposed to. And it led to an opportunity for God to teach him of this, because Cain came to him, he was very upset, God engaged him around this reality and called him to understand why it was that he responded in certain ways. But instead of listening to the Lord, what he did is he got very angry and he confronted his brother. And we're told that he actually murdered his brother because of this, because he became jealous. He became uh, so engulfed in hatred for his brother over this reality that he was willing to take his very life. It's the first murder in the history of the world. And what we need to understand in this story is that the sin that led Cain to murder his brother is the same sin at the root of all of our disunity as well. Our dislike, our dishatred for one another, the things that lead to the brokenness that we experience in this world, it is the reason for our division. It is why we cannot live together as one. It is why we fail to love one another. Therefore, according to the Bible, if we want to solve the problem of our disunity with each other, what we have to recognize is that we have to first solve the problem of our disunity with God, because it is the root that actually led to our disunity with each other. 
But if you thought that solving the problem of our disunity with each other is a big deal and an impossible task, the Bible says that our ability to solve our disunity issues with God is even greater. In fact, it's so great that there's no way that we could ever solve this on our own. There's no way that we can fix it by our own abilities or attempts. It is way beyond, far beyond anything that we could do on our own. We are lost. We are hopeless. However, the good news of the gospel is that what is impossible with man is actually possible with God. And in Jesus, God has not only revealed to us who he is in this world, in our creation, what we've been made for, the story of who we are and our fall, he has also revealed to us his great plan to save us and to reunite us both back to him, but also to one another. And this plan is this. You hear me talk about it almost every week because it's so important. God's great plan of salvation is that there is, in the fullness of time, God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, so loved the world that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, to become a man, live a life of perfect unity and faithfulness that, was as, uh, that we as simple human beings could never do because of our brokenness. And then in the most incredible act of love that the world has ever known, willingly sacrificed his life upon the cross as a substitute and a punishment for our sins, the things that we deserve to die for, in order to save us from our sins, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, reunite us with God and one another and forge us into a new people of his love. In verse 16, John says this, by this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. And then this, we can see that Jesus' love was anything but a platitude. It's not just a broad statement, y'all, we just need to love one another, right? It was bold action an unbelievable sacrifice that came with this love. And what we need to understand in this is that his great act of love has broken down the barrier walls that have separated us from God and one another and actually brought us to unity, a new unity in him. And this is what he calls the church. We are a brand new people because of his grace and his love. We are a foretaste of the reality of what he is going to do at the end of time when he takes away all brokenness and all sins. We are an outpost of the new kingdom of God called to reflect the nature of his love into this world so that the brokenness of our world and the disunity of our world might find its healing in him. That is our purpose. It is our hope. It is the driving factor of why we exist in this world. And there's something in here that we deeply need to understand. If you are a Christian and you love God, you must also love the church. If you have unity with God, you must also have unity with his people in the church. Because according to the Bible, deep loving commitment to the church is not an option. It is rooted in our very salvation and our very unity with Christ. 
You cannot be united with Christ without being united with one another. That's what it means to be the body of Christ, right? That's why he uses that metaphor in the scriptures. St. Cyprian said this, it is not possible to have God as your father without also having the church as your mother. And this is why John says here that if you want to know if you are a Christian or not, you must ask yourself, do you love the church? Are you committed to the church? Are you laying down your life for the church? Are you serving the church? Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, he who loves his idea of community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of community. I'm going to read that one more time because it's a powerful statement. He who loves his idea of community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of Christian community. Community can be a platitude in our culture, isn't it? You will not meet a person living in East Nashville who doesn't say that they love the idea of community. Love it. We're all about community. But what does that mean? And what is it rooted in? Does it actually lead to life and flourishing? Does it actually lead to love and healing? It's incredibly important for us to comprehend and to deal with and to struggle with. Why? Because it is not real love to think about it any other way. Imagine a mother who says that she loves her family but never spends any time with her family, always chooses to spend her extra time with other people. Imagine a father who works hard and makes a lot of money but doesn't help cover any of the family expenses, but yet says, I love my family. Doesn't work, does it? Because this is not real love. Real love is always expressed in deep, in deed, and in truth, not just in words, right? And that's the point of his last statement here. We should not just say these things just in words that you can say like platitudes, do they lead us? Do they change us? Do they drive us to action? Do they drive us to actually lay down our lives for one another? Do they drive us to service and commitment? This, John says, is what it means to lay down one's life for the good of the church. And this is what we're made for, the scriptures say. Now, at this point, you may be saying to yourself, you know, that's a fascinating idea, but it's incredibly scary incredibly scary because you've been hurt by the church and there are too many Christians out there that rub you the wrong way or or have said the wrong thing or have done things to you that have been incredibly hurtful incredibly damaging to your life and that's the rub isn't it many of us have been deeply hurt by the church or by people in the church We've been burned, and as a result, we're cynical about the reality that this thing that the Scripture says is the way that we're supposed to live can actually exist. And we want little or nothing to do with it, if it's anything like what we've seen in the past, much less the idea of loving it or dying for it, right? Herman Melville once said this, Heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. The truth is that the church is made up of a bunch of a messed up and broken and selfish and unloving people. And just the thought of it makes us want to give up, doesn't it? 
In this, it's easier just to do my own thing than to face the pain of old hurts. It's easier not to be accountable to anyone other than myself. It's easier to pretend that I'm a good person and that I don't have to have those people around me that will help me to see and understand where I need to grow because that is painful. It hurts. It's easier not to face my own sins. It's easier to go on vacation or go to the park or go to the lake or go do other things on Sunday than it is to come and to listen to a boring sermon and hang out with people who may look differently than we do or smell differently than we do or talk differently than we do or act differently than we do or have different interests than we have and are hard oftentimes to engage with. Or to say that I'm busy when that person that I've just met has asked me to move, right? Or they need a meal or they need something else. And the truth is, it is easier. Make no mistake. But it's also unbelievably lonely. And it will lead you to destruction. It is so much easier to focus in on ourselves, to bend in on ourselves, to do the things that we want, to only serve ourselves in this world. But it has led to the epidemic of loneliness that we experience in our culture today. C.S. Lewis says this, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it safe up in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But you need to understand that in that casket, safe, dark and motionless, airless, it will change. It will be unbroken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. Or to put it in John's words here in our passage, it will lead to death, the death of community. Does it sound familiar to you? I would argue that this is exactly the root of what's happening in our church, what's happening in our culture, what's happening in our world right now. This is why we are so divided and so lonely. This is why there is so little love and community. And it's also why the gospel is such good news. Because God and Jesus has broken into our lives and provided for us a way for this brokenness and our wounds to be healed by showing us a love that is greater than anything that we could imagine. But he doesn't just stop there. God cares deeply about the fact that we have been sinned against. He cares deeply about justice. But he also cares deeply about the fact that we have sinned against others. And here's the rub as well. The gospel forces us to realize that the deep problems and divisions of this world are not just rooted in something that's out there outside of ourselves. It forces the spotlight to come on us forces us to acknowledge that the problem exists within me. We are not just victims of sin and disunity. We are sinners who regularly lash out and wound others around us. And more often than not, it's our own self-righteousness that blinds us to this reality. But do you know what the great antidote to self-righteousness is? The cross. 
For when we look at the cross, we are forced to admit that our sins are real. And to see the ones that we should be, we are the ones that should be alienated from our God. We are the ones who don't deserve to be part of his people, his community, his life. We are the ones who don't deserve to be members of his church. And the only thing we deserve is death and eternal punishment. And that should humble us to our core. Of course, the church is a group of messed up sinful people. It is because I am a member, and so are you. One of my favorite quotes by Groucho Marx is, I would never be a member of a club that would have me as a member, right? It's a good thing to think about because that is a good reflection of what the church is all about. We are not a place for perfect people to gather together. We are a hospital for those who are broken and admit the reality of their need, their desperate need, both for God and for one another. By his grace, we find it. And the truth is that we should also fill us with an incredible hope as we realize this. Because even though we deserve death and punishment, we don't receive it. That's not what we've received from Christ. What we receive from him is love. We're a group of messed up sinful people who have been saved by Christ's death and united together by his love. This allows us to freely love, to freely repent, to freely serve one another because we know that God has loved and served us first. In our revisioning team, one of the things that I told you guys, in fact, the first week, it's almost been a year since I got here now, which is crazy to think about. And one of the first things that I told you guys is this. You need to understand, if, you, if I'm gonna be your pastor, that I am going to sin against you, and you are gonna sin against me. And the only hope we have in this world is the grace of God and the love of Jesus Christ that drives us to a place of humility and love for one another and repentance and faith. That is the foundation of what real community is all about. And this realization should shine a new light on the whole issue of why we should love one another in the church. It's not a guilt trip. I'm not interested in guilting you into serving more in this church or getting more involved or doing more things. What I'm interested in is the gospel taking a hold of all of our hearts so much that it pours out of us in such a way that we can't help but long to do that with each other. That's what I long to see. And I bet that that's what you long to see as well. It's not just a duty. It's a great privilege and gift. It's a privilege that none of us deserve. And it's a gift that has been bought with the precious blood of our, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is why God's love is not a platitude and his church isn't either because what God did on the cross was take all the sins and brokenness and hurt that we have committed against God and one another in the church and he treated Jesus like he had done all those things instead of us. And when he did that, he took all the things that you and I deserve to be punished and die for and he put them on Jesus. And when he did this, Paul says in Ephesians that he killed the hostility that exists within us and he made us one in him. And when you realize this, it will change everything. This letter that we are reading from and studying through was a letter that was written to the church in a time of great division. If you just imagine it for a moment as we close our time together, 
This was in the first century. You had great numbers of people across all these diverse and divergent cultures, races, and people groups that were coming together and joining together in the church. Uh, the church in Antioch had, it has a list of the elders there. It had five different elders from five different continents and five different racial groups. That's insane. That's hard to do in our culture today, as diverse as we are. It did not happen then. It was crazy. These people began gathering together in one another's homes, and they smelled differently than each other. They began sitting at one another's tables, and it felt weird to them to eat each other's food because their food was weird. They began sitting at each other's tables and eating one another's food, as I said, and all of these things began to drive them and, and cause them discomfort, and they began singing one another's songs, and they were weird because they came from different cultures, but make no mistake, it was hard for them to do this. It brought out their deep wounds and their prejudices toward one another. These were not perfect people. Their long histories of violence and anger and suffering and brokenness and division. This letter was written to a messed up church with messed up problems. Yet despite the incredible mess, something amazing happened that drew them together and united them as one. A unity began to form among them that broke down their differences and actually forged them into a new people of hope and love in this world. They began praying for one another, serving one another, bearing one another's burdens, sacrificing for one another. And in some cases, in fact, in many cases in the first century, they began dying for one another. And that was not a metaphor. How could this be? They had come to know the love of Jesus Christ. And that love transformed them into a people of love for one another and the world around them. And this same love is at work here and now in our very church today. Next Sunday, I'm going to close out my time now. Next Sunday, uh, we're going to have a family dinner. And we're going to talk about uh, vision and mission. We're going to talk about plans for what it looks like uh, to be a church together. This next week, we're starting back up our neighborhood group programs. Uh, let me just say, I have no expectation that this is going to be an easy thing for us to do. It is hard right now to be with one another. It's hard for us to remember what relationship is all about. It's hard for us oftentimes to even know what it is to sit down across the table and have a conversation. It's crazy how many things have been written lately about how we have just lost all ability to even talk to each other and ask good questions and engage one another. So what could possibly lead us to do these things together? The only thing is Christ. Our love for him will drive us to these things. And I would encourage you, my friends, as we enter into this time, to think deeply about that reality. When you feel that tug of not wanting to go to neighborhood group or not wanting to go to church or not wanting to go to these things, I want you to remember this in your head. I am not trying to guilt you into this. If that's where you're going to fear or to guilt, then that will never work. But if you remember the love of Jesus Christ, it will actually draw us together in such a way that our community will become the thing that we said in revisioning and every other place that we long for it to be. And it will become a bright and shining beacon to our neighborhood and to our world of the unity that we were made for in this world and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That's my hope. And I'm in. I'm all in. And I pray that you guys are as well.
not because of anything that I've said this morning, but because of Jesus and what he has done. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as your word sinks deeply into our hearts, we pray that it would not only transform us from the inside out, that it would break down these, these walls of, of uh, selfishness, of isolation that exist and have been built up, especially uh, deeply over the last couple of years, Lord, but that you would begin to knit us together as your people. Uh, give us a deep longing based in your love to love one another, to serve one another, to care for one another. And Lord, we long and we pray that you would move boldly in this way to develop us into a community of love that is not a platitude, but expresses itself in action and in deed so that we begin to reflect just a little bit more and more every day the reality of what you've made us to be and that through that we can become a great witness to a world that desperately is in longing for what it means to be united together and to answer this great question how the many can live together as one in the hope of the gospel. Father, we love you. We can never do this on our own, but we know that you can, and so that we pray that you would. In Jesus' name, amen.